Sam, we're prepping you for teens before you even get there. We're trying to get you ready for a girl teenager. Oh, God help me. Look, I mean, not to spoil anything, but based on the data that we're looking at, I think he's already well prepared because my understanding is that he spends most of his time at Chick-fil-A. Well, now you understand why all the teens love Chick-fil-A because (laughs) families are going to Chick-fil-A. It's just a match made in heaven. Well, we were talking with somebody. I went out for dinner last night. And somebody at the bar knows what I do for a living. And so they were like, you know, uh, they're building a, they're allegedly building a Chick-fil-A where my parents live. And someone was like, how are they even getting the permits for that? There's no way that a drive through can ever work there because it's so crowded already. And so we were talking about the permitting situation. And that's a big problem that Chick-fil-A has is their drive throughs even though they're fast, they're long. And I'm surprised that teens are willing to wait for that. Yeah, I mean, I went to a Chick-fil-A on Saturday, um, no surprise, and I went at 10 a.m., also relevant to our conversation today. However, I was picking up a catering order, so this was for my daughter's birthday party. We we got a platter of chicken minis for her and all her little girlfriends, and 10 a.m., at least 20 cars in the drive-thru. I mean, it's it's really bananas. Um, now, to answer your specific question about teenagers and going there when it's so busy, I mean, it's 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 got to be digital adoption, right? I mean, Chick Fil A is on the ball with digital innovation. They've always been, you know, maybe not the leader in innovation for mobile ordering, digital ordering, but they've always been right there. They've been keeping up with it, and it is very easy, despite Chick Fil A's busyness and longer wait times. Um, you know, the, the digital component always makes it feel like a good experience. And one thing I'll throw out there too, I walked in to order uh, uh, the, or to pick up the food we had ordered a few days before, and it wasn't ready because I was a little early. And one of the employees got lemonade for me and for Jude, my son, who was there with me. And like, just, you know, free. He's like, you want a lemonade while you wait? I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and that is classic Chick-fil-A. It's a hospitality, right? And, 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 you know, this is a little bit me, um, wandering with my point, but the, but I think ultimately the point is, is that when you have a great experience and it's convenient, teenagers and everybody else will overlook the long wait times because you, you still get a great experience. Well, and in another way that all of our stories today are overlapping, we just came out with our off-premises report. Um, where we use technomic data to rank restaurant brands based on how good they are at different off-premises channels. And Chick-fil-A is the third best at drive through out of all quick service brands. And that's ranked on a lot of things, but one of them is speed of visit. So, you know, the lines are long, but then you get your food right away. Uh, like it's still overall a great experience and this is according to consumers yeah and, and that's and that's consumer sentiment right so like what's important about that is yeah they measure they the technomic has collected um consumer sentiment on a number of metrics including speed of service order accuracy, all these things and but it all boils down to really how did it make you feel and that is at the end of the day the most important factor because no matter how long your wait was how much money you paid uh, no matter any of those things, if you had a good experience, you're liable to return, right? So, so the consumer sentiment is so important, um, and Chick Fil A is just always very good at um, creating a good experience and making customers feel good when they leave. Well, and that's what's interesting to me about raising canes on the list is their digital experience is not nearly as good as Chick Fil A's, 
but they have this almost cult-like status among people. Like they are known for being good hosts. They're known for having good food. They're known for the fact that you can get your food so quickly from there, but it's a higher quality than other QSRs. So I think that that's an interesting thing to point out is that, you know, we talk about all this consumer sentiment towards digital and drive-through and Raising Cane's is just simply giving you chicken, toast, and French fries and some coleslaw. But like, I think, it's yeah. simple. I, and not to really lean into how average my life is, um, but <laughs> I, the same day I got my chicken mini platter for my daughter's birthday party, we went to a, a birthday party for my son's friend and Raising Cane's catered that one. I just, this is, hello, welcome middle America. This is what we do, guys. <laughs> You know what? You guys will never know this. You New Yorkers and you you have all your fancy uh, your eating options. That's my New York accent, by the way. It was um, terrible. Yeah, well, I'm not practicing a lot. Um, but like, you know, Chick-fil-A catered my party. Raising Cane's catered the other party. Um, but I mean, Raising Cane's, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a fairly simple menu with a, another restaurant that provides a really good experience on the whole uh, again, hospitality. I think Raising Cane's probably more so than Chick-fil-A is is a convenience option because I think, you know, their drive throughs you don't wait as long in the drive through um, Their menu is smaller than Chick-fil-A's. So um, the, Ch- Raising Cane's is a bit more like, I want chicken fingers now and Raising Cane's is there for you. Chick-fil-A is a little bit more like, Chick-fil-A is like, I need to feed my family and Chick-fil-A has options and chicken is what they have. Um, so anyway, um, but raising canes also much like Chick-fil-A is very good at just positioning itself as a youthful, um, positive place for young people. And one example of how raising canes has done that lately is its relationship with Post Malone, right? So like if you tap into the personalities that resonate with teenagers, like, uh, raising canes has done with Post Malone. And as we speak, our colleague Ron Ruggles is going to meet, I think, Post Malone, uh, maybe, hopefully, yep. in, at his new Dallas restaurant, which is very cool. Lucky for Ron. Um, Spider-Man connection there, too. We won't get too deep into it. But um, <laughs> anyway, but like Post Malone resonates with teenagers. Teenagers like that kind of stuff. It's the same thing with like a Taco Bell is is that, you know, you're creating brand affinity. Teenagers, young people respond to that. Well, you say that brand affinity and the celebrity aspect. So McDonald's entered the list again at number three for the first time in a while. And, you know, they've done their huge celebrity partnerships. They're doing the the meals with them and, and their marketing has been doing a great job. But then you see brands like Taco Bell and Chipotle who are working with TikTok creators, who are working with all these things that you think would resonate with younger people. They're not on the list anymore. They've fallen off. And so it's, I think celebrity works in some cases for some brands, but it doesn't for others. But Alicia and I were talking um, for first bite that, uh, a lot of these brands are chicken brands. So it, it almost seems like that's the direction that younger consumers are going is towards chicken versus eating beef as much. What do you guys think about that? Yeah. I, and I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the chicken connection is other than again, convenience. Cause if I'm like hankering for some sort of indulgent food, like a, in my head, like a burger is more of like a, a meal. A burrito from Chipotle is more of like a meal. Chicken fingers are my like, mm, I'm just going to snack on something tasty, indulgent. You know, like, so maybe there's something to that. Again, that's me just projecting on my own feelings, but there's got to be something to that. Chicken has been hot for the last four or five years too, of course, with all the chicken wars going on. Everybody's thinking a lot more about chicken. Chicken is the number one protein and growing. 
in America. So chicken in general probably just really resonates. And there is a health halo, right? Like even though it's fried chicken and not that healthy, young people probably still see it as 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 healthier. But it's interesting. I mean, let, let's say, you know, talking about Taco Bell, because I've been thinking a lot about Taco Bell lately, which you'll all find out more about soon enough, and I won't spoil the surprise. Um, some of the surprises we spoiled already. But anyway, um, I'm surprised looking at this, Taco Bell hasn't been on this list since 2020, spring of 2020. And that is interesting to me because Taco Bell puts in a lot of work toward doing what you're doing, what you're talking about, Holly, which is that, you know, investing in these personalities, these influencers, these celebrities that are speaking directly to the teenager, I would have expected that to be them to be more prominent on the list. And especially to see like Taco Bell initially fell off the list because of Olive Garden. Like no offense, Olive Garden, but teenagers and Olive Garden is, are they going there for prom? Like why are, no, why do teenagers? Like, cool, like in a lot of towns, that's like the casual dining place to go. Oh, sure. Like, hey, to be like, one. Yeah, I get like I went to Applebee's and said, I feel like going to Olive Garden is the same like kind date. of thing. You went as a yeah. date night or before prom. That was like, that was, was at Applebee's in yep. my hometown. Olive Garden, I had to drive like a half hour to get there. But yeah, I mean, yes, it was fancy. That was like the upscale. I just think it's interesting that they superseded Taco Bell and then like Duncan shows up and anyway. Well, and I was thinking that the Starbucks thing, because, you know, teens aren't necessarily drinking coffee. And I, my thought was that maybe it's all in mall food courts, the Starbucks. Like, this, the Starbucks by my parents is in a mall. So, and w what do teenagers do? They get dropped off at the mall. They walk around for a few hours and they get picked up. And I feel like that could be why Starbucks is so high, because they're not really doing a lot of advertising. They're not really doing a lot. Like, it's not a brand that is looking to get more people in they just know that they get the people no matter what and teenagers don't say, drink coffee right i didn't drink coffee well, as a teenager did I you did. Guys? but absolutely like i know i am weird though i'm not trying to try to tell you guys normal i will say and i don't know how like normal this is or whatever but in my um the town where i grew up and went to high school there not at the time, but there is now a starbucks right across the street from the high school and if you mm -hmm. are stupid enough to drive that way in the morning on a school day half of the cars are turning into the high school and the other half are going through starbucks on their way to the high school um and i don't know how much of that is teachers but i am i do know that if you go there or even like during like the beginning or the end of the school day if it's like first period and kids have off periods like that place is overrun with teenagers and that, of course, is a matter of location. Like, it's right there. And again, no one else in town is stupid enough to go to that Starbucks at that time of day because they know it's just overrun with teenagers. But if Starbucks, I think that store opened, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. And if that was a strategy on Starbucks part, if they're opening up across the street from high schools or certain high schools, like I can absolutely see how Starbucks ended up on this list. And I mean, it's not like the whole thing of Starbucks is it's not just about coffee. So even if they're not drinking coffee, they're getting frappuccinos or, you know, it's coffee, but like pumpkin spice drinks or snacks or whatever. Like I can totally see do you, why it's do you know <laughs> You know what the smartest thing Starbucks maybe ever did was add cake pops to the menu because do you <laughs> know <laughs> i don't know i mean my kids thankfully we we've not introduced them to cake pops because it's one thing i don't want to have to deal with them like demanding to to get um and look no offense starbucks i'm not we're not big starbucks family over here but 
Um, but my my nephews, like my sister, has to is constantly going through Starbucks drive through to get them cake pops. My uh, I was just picking up Jude from preschool yesterday, and the kid that came out the door in front of him ran to her mom. She said, and her mom was like, "You know what time it is?" And the girl goes, "Cake pop!" Like, and the, mind you, that's a four year old, right? So like. That's smart stuff. And if we were to like, not to do your job for you, Holly, but like to, if we could bring this back into like some practical information, like wrap it up. Um, but like the takeaway for all of this is like, you got to invest in these younger generations to turn them into longtime customers, right? So even that four-year-old is going to have a relationship to Starbucks so that by the time she does drink coffee, if and when she does, or even just like, you know, the, the sweeter, treatier treats, drinks, starting to lose my handle on the English language because I said treatier. Anyway, um, you know, she Starbucks will be a part of her consideration set in a way that I didn't have my first Starbucks experience until I was in college, right? Um, and 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 just with all the other you know demographics, the Gen uh, Alpha, which is what my kids Gen are a alpha, part of, yeah. and Gen Z, which I think is like twenty five and under. Um, you've you've got to establish that relationship with them now because they will carry that into their adulthood and beyond. I was also not a Starbucks user until college, so don't feel bad, Sam. I I didn't like those drinks with the whipped cream on them. They kind of freaked me out. How they freak you out? And that's what a lot of people get. They, they get like they scare all those you? whipped cream drinks. They're just like I don't I don't know what's in them. I don't like whipped cream. It just like it makes me feel like just looking at them is unhealthy. So I just wasn't into it. And they can I be miss too drinking sweet. Black coffee. Leanne, this explains so much about you. I'll be honest with you. Can't believe you didn't know this before because I do feel it's like one of like three core facts that really like explains. When a lot. was your when was your first cup of coffee? How old were you? Oh my god, I was like six or seven. My grandmother gave me one, and my mom was just like, "I guess this is it now." <laughs> wow. My par- also, my parents don't drink coffee, but they had to start stocking it, like keeping it in the house for me. This is so interesting. This is that's very unusual. But I would never give a no, six-year-old. I know it's coffee. unusual. Yeah, I don't know what was going on, or I, I am, maybe it was one of those things where they're like, "We'll give it to her," so she stops asking because she'll think it's gross. And I was just like, "Ooh, coffee!" and loved it. And I have no, I have no idea why I was given a cup of coffee. I would not do it myself. And again, I'm not trying to say that I had a normal experience with coffee. <laughs> so bitterness on your palate must just be a lot different than most people's. Yeah. I guess I, found, I, I never liked coffee. Even when I started drinking it, yeah, I started no, drinking it out of necessity. Too, is, yeah, kids I don't like, like it either. It's hot bean water. I don't like it. Hot but Liam, the same water. age that you were when you started drinking coffee, it's the same age I was when I tried wine for the first time. Which again yeah, explains so much. <laughs> yep. Two different sides of the coin, man. Two different sides. Hundred percent. All right. Okay, so let's talk about, you know what, let's talk about the off-premises report because I feel like we really touched a lot of those details in this last story um, with Chick-fil-A and how brands are doing. So Sam, can you give us a little synopsis of the off-premises report? Certainly. So we were happy to partner with our new colleagues over at Technomic on the off-premises report. And, um, you know, what we were trying to accomplish with that was to say, um, yes, you can measure uh, very specific performance in the off-premises channels and on-premises channels too, um, but we wanted to broaden that. We wanted to sort of uh, widen the scope of it a little bit and say, um, you know, when you look at the omni-channel experience, the off-premises experience um, writ large, if you focused on, uh, you know, just one thing to understand who is best at it, you really have to get to 
how do customers feel? Are, do they like it or do they not like it? And that's consumer sentiment. And that's what Technomic provided for us, which again, um, you know, if I were to use an example from my old days with my friends at QSR Magazine, um, when I was doing the drive-through study there, you could say a certain length of um, drive-through experience in seconds. You could say this is long or short, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. And we always had that with Chick-fil-A, as, as I think, Holly, you mentioned earlier, early in. Like, the, a Chick-fil-A is always the longest drive-through experience, but that doesn't mean it's the worst or slowest. It just means there's a lot of cars in it, right? I, I bring up all that just to set the stage for those specific performance metrics don't tell the whole story. The whole story is better understood through how does the customer feel about their experience because that determines whether or not they want to come back. So Technomic provided us this data on um, for, a, for a perspective of drive-through, uh, carry-out, and delivery. And then we also had a chart for um, the overall uh, performance, which was to take all of this into account and measure against measure off premises, off premises versus on premises. Um, and our leaders were determined by who had the highest customer sentiment in off premise, sis, off premises. Oh dear God, I almost reverted. Off who had the best consumer sentiment in off premises, and whose gap was widest between their consumer sentiment in off-premises versus on-premises. So in other words, who is acing off-premises even better than their on-premises? And this is, you know, sorry, starting to say a lot, of premises. a lot. I'm starting to say it a lot. So off-prem. Off um, and so the results were on one hand, um, not surprising. And on the other hand, kind of surprising. Because I think you saw some brands show up on these. For example, Dutch Bros. Dutch Bros is not only number one, I believe, in drive-through, but they're number one as far as um, uh, in the overall category as well for quick service brands. And, you know, this brand has surged out of nowhere seemingly in the last four or five years into being this dominant coffee brand. And they are a drive-through only concept. And so I think it's an interesting lesson to learn about drive-through, which is like if you are intensely focused on drive-through, then customers are going to reward you with positive feelings towards your drive-through service and your off-premises service. And you can excel at that and, and win their loyalty. If you want drive-through coffee, Dutch Bros is the drive-through coffee place, right? Um, but, but, you know, getting ahead of myself, we broke these down into QSR, fast casual, and full service um, for each category, except for drive-through, because full service does not have drive-through. So that was QSR and fast casual alone. Um, and again, if you really dig into some of these brands, um, Raising Canes and Jersey Mike's show up for fast casual, like, of course, you know, these are, these are top performing brands across the board. Um, but like, um, uh, what was the one that surprised me? Honey Ham, uh, company, right? Like that totally surprised me. They were up for, hold on, wait for it. I'm going to go find, was it delivery? Do you remember this, Leanne? Um, I remember seeing it. Something else in delivery surprised me, but uh, I'm going to pull it up right now. Here, guys, come on. Yeah, I know this is my. Well, bad. I had them open, but there are so many pieces. Okay. Anyways, guys, go look for the report on our website. It's up. It's live. <laughs> Please go search for it because these two oh, are no, having a hard time. No, so no. <laughs> it was the overall chart. They were number two for QSR Honey Baked Ham. I like who saw that coming, but. But, but I guess the point is, is that like, it, you might be surprised to see some of these companies, but don't be surprised that some of these companies really plant their flag in creating this great experience <laughs> off premises 
because that's where a lot of their customers choose to engage with them. And it shows you just the importance of the off-premises channels in general, which is that like, it's a high bar and some brands are so intensely focused on the serving food outside their doors that they are able to clear that bar and then some and create a memorable <laughs> experience. Um, I'm not doing it justice clearly, but if you go to NRN.com and check out the report, you can really dig into some of the numbers and, and be surprised at some of the leaders we found that who is creating a great customer experience through their off-premises channels. I just want to throw out one thing that surprised me, which is that, um, in the delivery rankings, the top two QSR brands are Carvel and Coldstone, uh, which obviously both ice cream brands. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, those are two brands that do only ice cream and related products. And so they've taken this one thing that they do and they have figured out how to do it really, really well. Our colleague Nora gets Carvel delivered all the time um, for our Instagram page and like, it does. It always looks great. It's always still frozen. So there's so much that can be learned from the brands on these lists. You know, if you're a brand that does something else, but like you also serve ice cream, you can learn from these brands how to deliver ice cream well, because I think a lot of brands that do other things like haven't figured out that piece of the puzzle yet. Uh, so lots of interesting tidbits like that in different companies to be learned from here. Yeah, Krispy Kreme was another one. Uh, you know, Krispy Kreme shows up on the overall uh, best overall off premises, and again, they do donuts. That's what they do. They do donuts drive through. They do donuts mm -hmm. delivery carry out. And so the intense focus on the thing, I guess, is the lesson to learn here. If you can intensely focus on e excelling in a specific channel or through a specific menu item, um, you will be rewarded for that. Well, it's the same thing with raising canes, which we've seen on both lists we were talking about today. And I feel like it's a sleeper brand. I feel like people are really not as like are underestimating the power that Raising Cane's holds over both consumers who are Gen X, millennial, but also Gen Z and alpha. I think that Raising Cane's is going to be a real star in the next few years that we just need to look out for. Well, numbers that we haven't even thrown around there yet. If you think about Chick-fil-A and Raising Cane's in particular for the chicken segment, I mean, Chick-fil-A well-known is doing like 8 million plus per unit. Raising Cane's is doing, I think, five million plus. And the, those numbers are really unheard of in the industry. Um, you know, you have a few. It's Chick Fil A, Portillo's, Raising Cane's from an average unit volume. Um, people don't really come very close to that, and um, and it goes to show again, like the quality of the product they're offering. Right, like they they own a very distinct. Um, uh, uh, role, I guess you could say, in their guest hearts and minds. Um, but just that intense focus on excellence, again, with Raising Cane's, their menu is not very extensive. So they focus intensely on what they do serve. They serve it very well. Um, Chick-fil-A, a little bit um, of a bigger menu. Portillo's, that's a whole other ballgame. And if you want to learn more about that, listen to my episode of Takeaway this week. Michael Osanlu, CEO of Portillo's. See how I just weaved that in, that little It's um, all interconnected. Everything we do is interconnected, guys. <laughs> yep, we we've got an agenda. Um, but but Michael explains how Portillo's pulls it off. Portillo's has a huge menu. That's the opposite of a focused yeah. menu, you know. But like they're still people love them, and they make gobs and gobs of money. Um, well, their cake yeah. shake is something out of this world. They put a whole slice of cake in their milkshake. I mean, that's amazing it's I, I i'd be interested to know how much money they make on that one single item alone i bet it's a, it, it's famous in chicago that milkshake is famous that's where those that's where those eight million auvs come from 
Yeah, they do seven and a half million in cake shakes and about one in their Italian beef. <laughs> beef. So they're tiny. Very good French fries. I'm a big Portillo's fan. So I was excited that you interviewed him for takeaway. And was, Michael's was, awesome. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about day parts. We kind of touched on it a little bit earlier um, about how breakfast is moving. Um, it moved three years ago when uh, the world stopped um, and people weren't going to the office anymore. People were working from home. They were getting maybe their second coffee out. Um, it stayed there. We haven't seen it come back to regular levels. Um, but also something that Alicia Kelso noted this week is that dinner time is moving up. So breakfast is moving back, but dinner is moving up. So that eight o'clock reservation that used to be the prime reservation, now the reservation is six o'clock, which I think is really interesting to think about that breakfast is later, but dinner is earlier. And all of our times have all just gotten shuffled up and moved around. And that, um, a lot of the reason why Alicia was saying is because people aren't sticking around after work or they're not going out after work to have that 8 p.m. reservation. People are going out and coming home from work and they're going out to eat. They're not leisurely strolling around wherever they work anymore or meeting colleagues for drinks and then going out. Um, So that's one of the reasons why it got so much earlier. I mean, Danny Meyer even tweeted about it and that's kind of where she got the idea. So what do you guys think about the future of day parts? When I say quiet, it's my invitation to Leanne to no, start because I, know I don't know is, when to stop. I don't know where to start with this because this is another case where I am. I mean, like, Sam, I almost like want your opinion as the average American because I still eat dinner at oh. 8 or 9 o'clock. <laughs> Thanks. Like, I don't know if, well, I mean, like, New York must be skewing if Danny Meyer is the one who started this conversation. Um so, yeah, I think you're right. I think people are just, you know, wrapping up at work and going to dinner and then going home. Or maybe they've reversed their activities. They're eating before they go out now, which, well done, America. That's much healthier. Uh, um, but I really don't. I don't have anecdotes or, like, experiences from my own life to explain this because I am a late dinner eater if I'm eating out. So, well, listen, Leanne, I'm allowed to call myself an average American, but you're not allowed to call me an average American. Just kidding. Um, just I, did. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, whatever. I accept the mantle of average American. I, I think, I mean, uh, I, yes, the pandemic did all this because the pandemic just threw all of us into different routines that we have not 100% come back from. Um, myself, I, you know, I working from home was weird in March of 2020. And I now work from home all the time. Um, and as do you guys for the most part too. And um, that changed everything about my routine because I no longer had this hard uh, beginning and hard stop on my day. It, it used to be the very standard, you know, drive into the office at nine o'clock, drive, drive home at five o'clock. Everything between those two times was work time. Everything, you know, before and after those times was, me time. And all of that has blended. And and I think this is probably fairly standard across the board that now that I work from home, uh, not only have my meal times shifted, but everything has shifted. Now I do things like I go pick up the kids in the middle of the day, or, you know, I, I, I do my laundry while I'm working. All the, all the routine stuff has just gone topsy turvy because I'm at home. And so I don't have the hard beginning and hard stop to my day like I used to. Now I maintain standard meal times, uh, mostly because I have children who have to eat, and we eat with them at 
6 a.m. and noon and 6 p.m. That's just our meal meal times. Of course, there's a lot of snacking that happens in between. Um, but I do 100% understand how just the change in routine for consumers writ large has changed the nature of how they're visiting restaurants. And and I think, too, there's probably been more of a push toward um, communal dining in a way. Uh, you know, we went through a year and a half or so of not being able to do that. And I think now that maybe just happens more often or I mean, I mean, when I'm in New York with you guys, we're, we'll all go out for, you know, drinks and food and stuff because it's just nice to be together in person. And we'll do that at six o'clock. We won't wait for eight o'clock because, yeah, you go from the office to the restaurant. Uh, so I think all of that has changed it. I think the breakfast parts may be most interesting to me just because I don't know why breakfast, I mean, has become brunch other than maybe just brunch itself has become so popular and particularly with younger people, you know, and, and maybe brunch meetings, those kinds of things. But I'm a pretty firm, if I don't have food in my stomach by 6 a.m., I'm going to be miserable. I mean, I wake up at 5 a.m. though. So again, my routine maybe is a little bit different than yours. So so yeah, I don't think we should be surprised by these numbers, mostly just because of the way that all of our lives and routines have changed. Well, I think the breakfast segment is so interesting to me too, which is why I brought it up when I was talking to Alicia, because she focused more on dinner time. But the breakfast segment, you know, we talk about breakfast being dead when Wendy's came out with their breakfast right before March of 2020. And then they're, it bottomed. Everything was bad. And then we've seen in the past year and a half, two years, breakfast really surged back. I mean, Wendy's breakfast is huge now. Taco Bell's breakfast, which they killed, is huge now. And I think that it's it's an increase in users at a later time because people aren't waking up as early as they used to, except for Sam. Um, everybody is waking up later because they don't start in the office till nine and they're taking a break in the morning and they're ordering their food. You know, I'm not the only pe person with children, right? Not everybody is waking up later. Have you, have you met children? Do you know, do you know children? I try not to. But people are moving their, even if they had breakfast at 6am, there was a 10am spot for them to go get a coffee, to leave the house because we're all trapped in the house all day because we're working from home and we have to be in our desks and, so people are doing a lot of things that are outside of the normal time zones. And I think that that was breakfast coming back was what was so interesting to me because we lost it for a long time. And now it's like the darling of Taco Bell and Wendy's. I mean, and now the late night day parts are coming back too. like Jack in the Box is really big on the late night day part. So um, I think everything is coming back around if it's maybe at different times. Yeah. I mean, in general, I just don't think um, so much of the traditional way of doing things has been upended, uh, especially by the pandemic. We were probably going into these directions anyway, but you know, traditional meal times, traditional routines, the fact that digital tools allow us to live whatever life at whatever times we want, um, and restaurants fitting into that too, means that these things are are shifting and and will continue to do so. I mean. You know, I, I think it's important to note that as younger people don't have kids, right? Like once upon a time with the traditional family structure, everybody fell into those same routines and it carried on and on. And as young people choose not to have kids, the, the traditional structure of things will continue to evolve. So I think this is not a blip. This is not a trend. This is a new reality um, that all day parts will probably be relevant in some form or fashion. Um, more so than the traditional day parts of yesteryear. 
All right, well, guys, I think we had a wonderful discussion today. Everything kind of blended together, which was nice. I always like when that happens. Um, so thank you guys for joining me. I'm going to throw it over to Alicia Kelso, who interviewed Clay Dover. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly. Hi, it's Alicia Kelso, executive editor at Nations Restaurant News. I am at the Prosper Forum in Amelia Island, Florida. And I am now here with uh, Clay Dover. He's a CEO of Velvet Taco, a brand that he has been with since 2017. Clay, yes. thank you for Thank you. I appreciate you letting joining. me talk. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I know that your, your industry experience runs much deeper than Velvet Taco. <laughs> walk me through that real quick. Uh, I started as a busboy at Bob's Big Boy in California when I was 15 years old. Put myself through college waiting tables. Worked for Chili's as a restaurant manager and uh, jumped onto the corporate side and have been in a variety of marketing and executive roles. And um, yeah, it's the greatest industry in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, what intrigued you to Velvet Taco? Yeah. So uh, at the time, I was already in a role and the founder, Randy DeWitt, called me and said, uh, hey, I've got this four concept uh, chain that uh, we just sold to some private equity guys and we're looking for someone to, to lead it. And I had actually visited Velvet Taco in Dallas where the first one was and uh, had stayed uh, late at night and stayed in a line to actually get the tacos. And so very rarely will I ever wait in a line to get food. And I remembered that experience. And um, so I flew out on a weekend and spent the entire weekend from open to close. And at that time, the Fort Worth restaurant closed at 4 a.m., so I was there all day, and I just stood and watched as there were lines of people clamoring to come and try the tacos at Velvet Taco, and uh, I was hooked. That was a selling point for you. Yeah, I mean, when you got lines of people coming in, um, that, that's always helpful. And then just the, the brand is phenomenal. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but um, it's very rich in culture. The people that are there that have been part of the success um, have been just an amazing team to work with. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Okay. 2017, four units. Yes. 2023, 44, correct? Yes, correct. So correct. that is. That All is, company owned. I mean, that's remarkable, especially <laughs> given the past three years. Tell yeah. me what has driven a lot of that growth. And yeah, so great, uh, number one, great food, great tacos. So our brand is a chef-forward taco concept. Everything is made in the restaurants. Uh, our top selling tacos uh, include flavors from all over the world. We have Korean fried rice. We've got tikka marsala tacos. Uh, we've got several vegetarian dishes. Um, and so it is not your typical taco joint, I guess I would say. And so uh, our brand DNA is seeped in culinary uh, excellence, uh, a lot of fun, trendy foods. We do something called the WTF, which is the weekly taco feature. So every week, not month, not quarter, not season, every week we have a different taco. So we'll do everything from octopus tacos to uh, a variety of all kinds of flavors uh, and allows us to be real fun and exploratory and allows our restaurants to do things that no one else would. Does that build, it seems like that would build anticipation, like the crumble cookie of taco. <laughs> somewhat, yes, uh, somewhat, although I think we were doing it first, so I'll take credit for that <laughs> fair, one. Now. Fair, fair point. No, it is. Uh, every Wednesday we come out with a new one. It's only there for a week. Sometimes it's only while supplies last. But, uh, yeah, you never really know whether it's going to be a chicken parmesan taco or a pad thai. I mean, 
The beautiful thing about tacos is you can turn anything into a taco. So we take inspiration from all over the world. Yeah, it's a, definitely a good canvas. Probably one of the reasons the category in general has seen a pretty staggering it growth. Has. We, you know, we at Nation's Restaurant News cover emerging brands, you know, sure. uh, pretty closely, and that has really stood out, um, you know, to me, especially in the past year or two. How, how are you positioned in a category that is growing like this that we're talking about it? And sure. then how will you? you know, continue to maintain uh, uh, some kind of differentiation? It's a great question. We've seen a lot of competitors coming into the space. Um, you know, I, I think that the challenge uh, for all brands, not just tacos, but all brands is the power of differentiation. When you think about your favorite restaurants or the ones that stand out, there's something special about it. Um, yeah, anyone can throw something into a tortilla and call it a taco. But uh, when you've got flavors, you've got textures, you've got culture, you create an experience, all those things come together and it creates a, a brand experience in the restaurant. And so with Velvet Taco, what we've tried to do is take the, the high end of that, the, the high end of fast casual. You go up to the counter, you order your food, we'll call your name, uh, but your food is made and curated just for you. So we've got the recipes that we think are the way that the taco should be made it's a time-tested um you know recipe i promise but if someone says hey look i'm i don't like jalapenos can you pull those out we can um but everything with us we do premium products we do um we have kobe beef in our burgers uh we get our paneer cheese from india uh so we try to make sure that the experience that we have we have maytag blue cheese from it's Danish blue cheese. I mean, it's it's pretty serious yeah. quality products. Um, I know it's a bit cliche, but we don't have any freezers, so everything's done fresh. So it might take uh, five, ten minutes to get your food, but we're going to make it fresh for you. We're going to grill it up uh, and put it together and then call your name. That, I think, is a big differentiator for us. Um, the international appeal to our brand and the cultural um, kind of inclusion of our tacos. So... Um, you know, if you've never had paneer, you can have paneer at our restaurant, which is actually really good if you haven't had it. Um, you know, the other thing also is that uh, we do have alcohol. So we have margaritas. We have liquor licenses in our restaurant. So they're made with tequila. Um, and uh, we are also open very late. So we'll be the latest <laughs> restaurant open in any of our neighborhoods. Uh, some of our restaurants were open until 4 a.m. on the weekends. Yeah. And um you know, there's nothing like a little extra tacos late at night after a night out uh, on a Friday or Saturday night. And there's nothing like a margarita, my that, opinion. <laughs> that is true. We can um, do those too. Um, you, you touched on late night. Obviously, it's a it's a big uh, you know business for you. I kind of want to talk a little bit. I think what intrigues me is you came on board three years before the pandemic, and now yeah. we're three years after that sort of fulcrum. Ooh, that's a great point. Um, three and three. It's I, kind of like a middle point. Yeah. Tell hmm. me about some of the adjustments that you had to Ugh. make during that time, and have any, you know, st stuck around, I guess. Sleeping four hours a night. That was uh, <laughs> something new during the time. Um, you know, I think, thankfully for us and our brand, we try to look five years down the road. Um, so I always have a five-year plan. If you were to say, hey, Clay, where are you going to be in five years? I could tell you. Now it's a plan. The plans always change. And at that time, heading into the pandemic, we were already in the transition plans of changing out our POS system, putting KDS screens in the back of the kitchen, 
we were re-engineering our to-go boxes. And so we had a lot of these things that we were putting in place already. When the pandemic hit, it just accelerated everything. Sure. And so thankfully we had, you know, made the decision to, to make a POS change. We had put KDS screens up. We had gotten rid of paper tickets. Um, our to-go boxes, uh, we were 30% to-go sales. We jumped to 70% to-go sales. Thankfully, we were ready. We had already done some training and laid it all out. Those things mostly have stayed. Um, we're now about 50% takeout. Um, so it's still a big part of our business. That stuck around. I think some of the efficiencies that we learned during the pandemic, we continued to work through, uh, whether it's prep procedures or... Um, you know, continually focusing on, you know, we sold margaritas to go. Yeah. Hey, what do you know? Thank you to the Texas Restaurant Association <laughs> and Governor Abbott for letting us in the state of Texas do margaritas to go and elsewhere across the country. But, you know, that really helped during that time frame. And we continue to do that yeah. today. Yeah. I think that was my favorite thing that came out. <laughs> Everybody loved margaritas the margaritas to go. To go. still yes. taking advantage of that. Yes. <laughs> you said to go is 50%. Is that all off-premises, including delivery? Yeah. So of that, about 30% or so is third-party delivery, and that includes catering. Uh, but, yeah, we have all digital uh, channels open. We also have our own digital channel open where we have our own mobile app. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it's 51%, to be exact, of our business goes out the door one way or the other. Okay. Um, we also have been rolling out what we call taco lanes, uh, where you would roll up. You can either pre-order your tacos ahead of time and on our mobile app. So when you roll up, we'll actually tell you when your food is ready. We'll say, Steve, your tacos are ready. You drive up, you say, my name is Steve, we hand you your tacos, you drive through. Our time at the window is actually 27 seconds. So it's very fast, very efficient, uh, and it's another way in which you can get your tacos. Are you seeing, I mean, the taco lane is interesting because we're seeing that yes. start to proliferate more. Yep. Um, you know, what are some of the results that you're seeing from the taco lane specifically? Yeah, great, great question. We're seeing an increase of sales of around 10 to 15 percent where we've retro and put those in. So it's definitely a incremental group. I think the biggest thing and you mentioned it before was, you know, what, what are you seeing? Efficiency. I mean, that's one of the things I would say to all the all of your millions of listeners that are listening to this. <laughs> um, you know, it's our job to get, for our case, Velvet Taco in the hands of consumers whatever is the best way for them. Um, if you make it difficult for consumers or, you know, I've got kids and I don't want to have to park my car and come into the restaurant to pick up my food or boy, I got, I can't find your app or I got to go on this website. And then I got to enter my credit card. Seamless transactions, touchless transactions, online ordering, any way that we can get you your food, we want to do it. And that's something that we've learned during the pandemic and I think will continue to accelerate post-pandemic. Sure. Okay. Um, earlier when I was making you go through your resume a little bit, uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned you're a marketing guy yes. by trade. Um, that is Way back not when. Surprising. Don't hold it against me. Yeah, well, no, that's not surprising <laughs> to anybody who covers Velvet Taco. We get, <laughs> you know, um, a great PR team that you've got in place keeping us posted in sure. all your news. Some of the stuff is a lot of fun. I yes. mean, your chat GPT taco. Uh, yes, the chat uh, GPT taco. You know, taco. Talk, talk to me about sort of your approach here, um, you know, to, to have these sort of headline grabbing things that I, I'm not seeing anywhere else, really. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the restaurant industry is fun. Um, Velvet Taco is fun. 
um, it, it's an it's an, about an experience. And so what you want to do with your brand is in, incorporate all aspects, not just the actual tacos themselves, which they have to be great, uh, but also the experience. And when you take things that are relevant, are topics of today, and you can utilize those and leverage them. You mentioned the Chad GP taco. So it was actually our chef who brought it to us and said, hey, um, this Chad GPT, you know, like it's on my phone and I downloaded all of the ingredients into the that are in our restaurants and said, make us the perfect taco. And here's what it spit out. And I was kind of like, well, that's pretty interesting. Like, how are we going to use, you know, this kind of technology to move us forward? And here I have a chef that's using it not to take the place of a chef, but to help come up with ideation. And so we came up with this, well, sorry, the computer, ChatGPT, came up with the taco and um, it spit it out and we then marketed it. It became our WTF for the week. It was our best-selling WTF, grabbed a lot of headlines, news stations picked it up. Um, you know, it was a surf and turf with shrimp and, 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 and flank steak. I mean, it was a great taco, um, but it showed us a different way of looking at things. And so I think from a brand standpoint, we are storytellers. The restaurant industry is an amazing place in which you can tell your brand story, regardless of what it is. Uh, it's more than just a simple transaction where you get food and you get filled up. When people think about restaurants, it's the fabric of America. It's where you went for your birthday. It's when friends come to town. Here's where we went. Let's go get drinks together here. Um, it is now uh, just a commonplace thing to incorporate restaurants into your daily life. And so for us and for all brands, not just Velvet Taco, I think the exciting thing is, is what does the brand say? What is your brand voice? And then people understand what you're about. They go, okay, it's an exploratory fun thing. You're having fun with headlines. You're having fun with tacos, ideas. I'm going to come in for an experience. This isn't going to be like something else that I can get somewhere else. That's part of, you talked about positioning before, we want to create a culinary experience. Um, we had a, a grasshopper taco for a WTF. Um, it didn't sell that great, <laughs> uh, but we had freeze-dried grasshoppers in the taco. And you know what? It was pretty interesting and it was different and people were able to say that. For Mardi Gras timeframe, we've done fried alligator. To be able to go back to the office after going out to lunch and say, guess what I had? I had an alligator taco today. You just can't do that everywhere. And so I think the differentiation for the brand is something that you have to really lean into. Whatever that is for your brand or for whatever that is for your restaurant company, accentuate it. Talk about it. Have fun with it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, any chance I'm bringing in those WTFs permanent, like the yeah. GPT, for yeah. example? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the beautiful thing with that whole WTF, it is a stage gate process for us. So we actually have over 300 recipes of tacos that we've done, and we know exactly how well they sold. We know exactly what they took away from. We know the costs. We know consumer feedback. So at the end of every WTF, we do three things. Number one, we do an analysis after the fact and look at sales and, you know, did we have enough product? Would we order more, et cetera? Secondly, we talk to our operators, which is the most important thing. Um, we talk to the operators and say, how well was it to execute? Was it easy? Was it hard? Was there extra steps? Was there less extra steps? And then the third thing is we gather guest feedback. So through our technology, going back once again to tech, we're able to reach out to those guests that actually ordered the taco, get their ratings, 
Would you come back? Would you order? Would you recommend it to a friend? And now we've got this database. So several of our tacos that are on our core menu, chicken and waffle, for example, it's a phenomenal uh, taco for us. It's been on the t uh, menu for a couple of years now. It started out as a WTF. And so it actually allows us the opportunity with real guests to see how well a taco is going to do. And sometimes they don't. Um, let's just say there's not a, uh, you know, cricket taco on the menu <laughs> nowadays, but it was a lot of fun. It was one of my favorite WTFs. I bet. Um, you're in the breakfast space. Ah, the breakfast space. <laughs> you know, tell me about that comeback story, which I, I don't want to make the assum assumption it's a comeback story, but industry-wide it is. So. Oh, definitely. Um, and, and what that mix is for for you. Yeah. So today it's very small. Um, for the industry, breakfast is a growing area. You talk about competitive space, um, you know, whether whether your first watch or, or one of the other breakfast chains, they are growing like crazy, super successful. Um, our population is, is, you know, we have some baby boomers that are, that have time to go to brunch every day. Um, you know, bringing breakfast and brunch items in at the workplace is a huge opportunity for us. Um, you know, we have three day parts. We have lunch, dinner, and late night, uh, but we do have crews in our restaurant. We have teammates and tribe members that are there already working. So we are testing some breakfast tacos. Um, they're, they're great uh, tacos that our chefy has put together. Very, uh, very velvet taco-ish, so very um, unique in items. Uh, and we have them available to be able to be ordered via online or through third party. Um, and, uh, you know, we think there's some brands out there that do a pretty decent job with breakfast that uh, we might be able to take some cues from. Okay, very good. That's four. That'd be four day parts. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm not good at math, but I'm counting in my head. Uh. Okay, if this breakfast sticks. Um, that requires labor. Yep. And that plays into the challenges that we've been writing about and you've been dealing with for the past several yes. years. Are we, where are we in terms of those challenges? Yeah. Including and especially labor. They are very real. Uh, the labor challenge is real within our industry. Um, I th Look, I think that the trick for restaurants is to create an environment and a culture in which people want to work. They want to be successful. They want to succeed. Um, it, it's going to be tricky uh, as we continue to grow and find great people that can execute our menu at Velvet Taco. You know, it's not an easy thing. Um, the prep we do and the products that we create are, are challenging. You know, it's not zipping up, cutting open a bag and heating something up. I mean, we are brining meats. Uh, we are grilling items in prep. We're making our salsas fresh. Uh, and so I think the challenge that we've got is create an ambiance and an atmosphere at every single restaurant where people feel empowered. I also think that from a, we have what we call a path to progression. You can start as a prep person for us or an hourly prep team member and work your way up to become anything really. Uh, I think some of the best things that I've seen that give me goosebumps even just saying this is we've got managers that I remember being prep cooks okay. um, and they are running multi-million dollar restaurants for us right now. And I'm proud of that yeah. um, to be able to create that environment and that opportunity. Um, that's what we're all challenged with in this industry. Well, and I, that, that's a good uh, segue, if you will. We're at the Prosper Forum. Yes. Uh, you know, there's intentionality behind this event. Why is it important for you and Velvet Taco to be here? 
Yeah, no, I think that it is very important in providing opportunities for everyone, whether it's age, race, color, creed, whatever it is. This is the one industry that I think someone can start at the very entry level and work their way up to become a CEO, to become a vice president, to become whatever they want to be, to start their own restaurants. Um, you know, you can learn on the job. You can work hand in hand with someone. You can create your own destiny. And it's important for us to make sure that we, uh, as leaders within the industry, provide those opportunities. And that's what the Prosper Forum's all about. It's been a phenomenal event, hearing the stories and seeing some of the leaders and talking about where they came from and some of the some of the programs that are in place um, are inspirational for us. I mean, we're still a small restaurant company. We're 44 restaurants. Um, I aspire to have some of the things that the larger restaurants have and to create um, opportunities for everyone within our organization, um, regardless of their backgrounds, their beliefs, their colors, their ages, or where they came from. Um, this is the place that we can do that. I'm excited to be part of it. Great. Um, 44 units. <laughs> You, we call them restaurants, but yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting too technical here with my <laughs> industry speak. Um, you know, what's what's your, do you have Target? There's a, there's a lot of white space here. There is a lot of white space. Um, especially in a growing category, as yes. we mentioned. So tell me, as you're comfortable, what your Target domestically is. And then is there a conversation to be had about international? Am I getting too far ahead? No, 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 no. Look, I, I told you before that we think five years in advance, you have to have those kinds of plans. Um, our goal is to become a national brand, uh, to be known from coast to coast. So is that some magical number? I mean, sure. Uh, we're gonna open up 12 restaurants this year. We've grown from four to 44 over the last six. So that's a pretty aggressive growth rate. We wanna open up great restaurants one at a time. Um, sometimes that's difficult. Um, I won't say that every site has been a home run that we've said, boy, boy, this thing is just blowing up. But we've got great restaurants. We have great people. Our goal is to continue to grow in new markets. So we're going to Miami. We'll open our first restaurant in Florida and Fort Lauderdale in a week and a half. And then we're going to Miami after that. We have a couple other states that, that we've got eyes on. Um, we hear up in the Northeast that people like tacos. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky, I heard, yeah, I was, is a great... I was like, I, we like tacos and margaritas <laughs> in Louisville, Kentucky. I, I guarantee Especially that. on the margaritas there. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, there are tons of opportunities. We're in six states. Um, and our goal is to maintain a presence where, you know, whether it's through non-traditional opportunities, we think that there's opportunities in airports. Uh, we're opening a casino with uh, our partners in Choctaw Nation, which I'm excited about. Um, Will that be your first casino? That'll be our first okay. casino, and, and we have a Houston Hobby Airport location that we're going to do. That'll be our first airport location. Great. So, you know, there's a great opportunity to build our brand uh, in areas that, you know, they just don't know who we are. Uh, they haven't seen anything like us before. They've never had a chicken tikka taco um, they've never had a kick-ass margarita. Am I allowed to say that? Sorry. That's what it's called. It says that. That's what we call them. Because um, it's We don't it, it censor is. anybody here. All right, good. Well, they're kick-ass margaritas because they kick ass. Um, and then from a growth beyond that, yeah, I believe that our menu, our tacos, uh, will go beyond our borders. Uh, I believe that we have a worldwide brand. Um, you know, we want the right partner. Uh, it's not just going to be anyone, but... Um, you know, we've had some early conversations with some folks. We think that the, the right 
partner who can execute our vision uh, would be great to partner with and to go international. So yeah, I do believe that there will be international velvet tacos uh, in the not not distant future, maybe not sure. the near future, but uh, sure. you know, it's going to take a little bit, but we're look, we're definitely interested in opening. So if sure. there's listeners, please give us a call. <laughs> well, final question then, and again, another segue. Thank you. You're helping me do my job. Sure. What can we look forward to in the near term? I know you said you have a five-year plan, Yeah. but what are we going to be paying attention to focused on hearing from you next year, even the end of this year and into next year? <laughs> Q4. Yeah, and <laughs> wow. Um, no, I, I think for us, our goal is to focus on our people. Um, we all are nothing. Um, look, there's no cash registers in my office. Um, you know, my job is to set the vision. We've got a great COO, Michael, who leads our operations teams. We've got great uh, operational leaders, both regionally and at every restaurant. We have to develop our people to become those next great leaders. If we're going to continue to grow at the rate that we're growing, we have to invest in our people. We have to invest in the systems. We have to invest in the programs. I want our team members, our tribe members at the restaurant level to know that there's an opportunity to grow with us. I want that trainer who's traveling from Dallas, Texas, out to Florida to open a restaurant for us to know he or she could have a management job. Uh, he or she could run their own restaurant. And it is a good career. It's a hard career sometimes. It's a lot of hard work, uh, but those opportunities are there. So I think from us, you'll continue to hear us grow. We'll continue to grow. We've got lots of sites planned out. Um, but I think it's about making sure that we do it the right way with the right people. And so I think you'll hear that not just from Velvet Taco, but from a lot of folks. Um, the labor challenge is real. Um, we need to make sure that we prepare our people to be our brand ambassadors uh, for Velvet Taco across the U.S. I trust you'll keep us posted. Of course, always. Right. I will always be happy to well, keep you posted. Well, it's been fun to watch, fun to follow, fun Thank to cover. You. And I anticipate you know, staying up on all this. Congrats. Of course. Thanks Thank for, you. Thanks for joining us, Cliff. Thank you so much. Appreciate all the work that you guys do and the support that you give our industry.